Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Growth Equation. My name is Clay Skipper. Uh, I have with me here, as I do most weeks, Steve Magnus and Brad Stahlberg. What's happening, guys? Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, you know. It's uh, no longer cold here. It's good running weather. Watch the New York City Marathon from afar. I'm, I'm pumped up. I'm ready to go marathon training. Not really, but, you know, maybe for a split millisecond. So things are going well. Do you really need to train for a marathon? I feel like you have one in you even if you didn't do the training. No, I mean, no, I don't need to train for one, but it wouldn't be pretty. It would be very <laughs> horrible to run and probably watch but yeah i mean i'd get i'd get through it decently but you know there's there's that that athlete in you you don't want to do one unless like you're doing it well i don't want to go run you know i won't say a time because i don't want to yes i, I, I was waiting wanna, for that i was waiting i don't for that i won't drop. say a yes, time exactly. but you know i don't want to <laughs> run something that i'm just like yeah you know i could have done that as the easy day back in the day so you know i i just Fair. stay away from it yeah, it was wonderful. I'm in New York, so it was, I was out there on the streets yesterday. It's a, uh, as a lot of people say, it's the best day of the year. So it was fun. It's good to be in that environment and celebrate everyone. Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing. I'm doing all right. I've been in my head a lot the last week with these ideas about philosophy in the world. So I'm excited to get out of my head with y'all today. Great. Um, that's it's appropriate since we renamed the podcast philosophy is happening on the uh, on the previous episode <laughs> i guess there was some spillover effect yes exactly you've been uh what's that movie? no that what's was two that, episodes uh, ago yeah. you're wrong we talked we talked milk previously so we're we're going oh, we're yes. going highbrow and then lowbrow and just yeah. keeping I, it interesting i i do love how you know clay and i are just talking marathoning and then brad's in his head over here philosophizing so <laughs> It's it's a nice contrast, you know, where our priorities lie. Got to have the balance here. Yeah. Uh, also, not drinking milk today. Just saw Brad drink some water, so he's uh, yeah, no milk today on the podcast. I'm going to make um, you cringe. It's seltzer water. Oh man, classic. <laughs> Don't worry, people are like, oh god, are we going to have a ten minute segment on sel- different seltzers now? But instead, I will kick it over to Brad, who because he's been in his head has, I think, is um, a topic he's he's wants to discuss today. Yeah, I'm going to tee this up. Uh, I'm going to tee it up with two different philosophers of the 20th century and um, some theories about what makes us human and where our humanity uh, can really shine, but also when these things degrade, where we're at risk. So the first is Hannah Arendt, um, who's a historian and political philosopher. And she was really known for her theory around alienation. And particularly, she argued that if we become alienated from ourselves, if we lose the ability to think our own thoughts, we become at risk of falling prey to totalitarianism. Uh, I wrote about this in the newsletter recently. It could be a demagogue or authoritarian leader who takes control, but in our era, I think a bigger risk is that the algorithm takes control. And we can talk about what I mean by the algorithm. Uh, so that's the first. We lose our ability to think our own thoughts and bad things can happen. And then the second philosopher is Viktor Frankl. At least it's often attributed to Viktor Frankl, though, Steve, help me out here. In your work for your book, Do Hard Things, it's actually someone else that had the stimulus and response quote. Am I wrong or am I remembering that right? 
I'm glad you read the book, Brad. It is in there. Um, it is actually uh, Rollo May. And the, the, the exact quote is slightly different than just a little bit different than the one that often gets repeated. But the origin is Rollo May. So the quote that often gets repeated and is often attributed to Viktor Frankl, though really is is something that is prevalent in many different philosophies, essentially says that in between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space, we have freedom to choose our action. So in many ways, that space represents our agency and our humanity. Very literally, unlike other animals, we can be thoughtful and discerning instead of just instinctively reacting. So at the individual level, having that space is really important for our mental health. And then collectively, you could argue that space is what gives rise to civilization, right? Like it's what allows us to work together, to compromise, to resolve disputes without violence, to make plans, to execute on them, so on and so forth. And man, it is hard not to look around the world and just fear that that space is like slowly collapsing. Uh, And again, I think that it's this attention economy that just really pushes us towards reactivity and tribalism. Yet, we're living in a time when our most pressing problems require that space in our humanity more than ever, right? Like climate change, pandemic, war, political dysfunction. These are things that all, if we're going to work our way out of some of these, these issues, like we are going to need our humanity. Yet the more of it, the space between stimulus and response collapses, the more we just come to resemble animals. So that's the stuff that's been on my mind. <laughs> What got you thinking about that? Was it, were you, were you seeing like people tweeting specific stuff? Were you like seeing angry uncles rant on, on, on Facebook? What was the, what got you thinking about this? I think it's, it's, it's just, okay. So a couple of things. Um, the first is yes. Like the social media has just become, it seems like more and more of a dumpster fire. Um, over the past couple of, of months, really, but particularly in the last few weeks, the conflict in the Middle East certainly doesn't help things. Uh, but I don't just think it is only social media. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times ran a story um, in an attempt to be first and break news. And, and as longtime listeners know, I write for the New York Times regularly. So it's a paper that I, I'm proud to write for. Uh, but they really dropped the ball. They ran a story that essentially accused one side of a war of bombing a hospital. They put up a stock photo of said hospital. And then later, we learned that it was actually an errant rocket from the other side. And it had hit a parking lot next to the hospital, not the hospital itself. And as a result of this mistake, an entire summit was canceled where President Biden was supposed to meet with Arab leaders to discuss how to wind down this conflict. So like it had very real consequences. And I don't think any one particular person at the New York Times messed up. I think that this is a symptom of a system, an attention economy that says, be first, be bold, be extreme. So I think what really got me thinking about this is for a long time, I thought, all right, this is just people on the internet, on social media. But I think it is becoming more and more pervasive in all corners of our culture and our economy. And it's not just people, it's legacy media organizations. It's the business world, right? Like move fast and break things. Um, We are just becoming more reactive. Again, if you go back to that quote, the space between stimulus and response is where our freedom lies. 
to choose. And our ability to choose is literally what separates us from animals. It's like the algorithm is turning us all into like rodents in a dopamine experiment, just at a lever, just impulsively hitting that lever. Tweet, PR story, breaking news headline, tweet again, get pissed, launch a product. Who cares if the product doesn't have data? Say it does. Just go, 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 go. Um, And I think it is bad for our humanity. I think it's bad for getting through the kind of challenges that we're facing. And I think um, it's bad for us thinking our own thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot there. I, I'm not in disagreement. I mean, I think I'm in complete agreement here. Um, it was something, you know, I thought about a lot while writing Do Hard Things, actually. And we had these conversations, Brad. Well, Do Hard Things was about resilience and like largely applied to the individual or team. But uh, underneath it all was this understanding of like societally, we're seeing some of these shifts. And another way I would frame it is it's almost like we've trained our alarm, our like inner alarms to just be hyper reactive to everything. So like the, the threshold for like going from zero to a hundred or pulling that lever is like so easy to reach now that like we see it, it has two folds. One is like we go move fast, break things, react all the time. And then I think the opposite side is we get into what I'd call like defensive protective mode so easily because we see threats everywhere. Like everything is a threat to ourself, our view of whatever, like everything. So what that incentivizes is like more zero sum thinking more like either or like good guy, bad guy, like good or evil. And we lose not only the ability to respond, but we lose like the entire nuance of like understanding difficult things or complex things because it's a heck of a lot easier to like see the thing that happened and pick our side based on what's going to grab the attention or where we think all the people who are similar to us are in our group or in our tribe are going as well, instead of, to get to your point, like taking the time to think and think things through. And I think societally, we're, we're headed down a very weird and possibly bad path because of it. And when I say the algorithm or the attention economy, I want to define the term in just broadly speaking, let's call the attention economy um, the series of products and services that monetize capturing people's attention. And as social media has become bigger, more and more businesses that had nothing to necessarily do with the internet now function on the attention economy. It's why you have like Arby's and Burger King and Wendy's spending tons of money for good Twitter people to run their social media because we're all just competing for attention and it's really saturated. I mean, Steve and I know this firsthand. It was so much easier to sell a book one year ago. It was twice as easy two years ago. It was five times as easy five years ago. Like each one of these turns, there's just, there's just more stuff that you're competing for people's attention. And we know like basic principles, right? People stop and look at car wrecks. That's why you have the gawker effect in traffic. And it is just something about our innate evolution 
that when we see something that is a threat to us, we stop and we pay attention to it. So if you want to capture people's attention, you make everything really threatening, as Steve said, emotionally charged. And then you also need to move with tons of speed. Like you got to be on the trend. I mean, literally, again, back to social media and the internet, the internet has trending topics. And if you break the trend, then everyone's going to link back to your story. You have the best SEO. So all of the incentives are, again, to like just go, to be first, to not think, to not confirm, um, to not let things breathe. And at the individual level, what you get, and I hate to sound so, um, so judgmental because sometimes I'm guilty of this too, but for whatever reason, in the last like two weeks, it's really clicked. People just like go parrot one thing to the next. And like suddenly you're an expert on vaccination, then you're an expert on epidemiology, then you're an expert on politics, then you're an expert on Middle East conflict, then you're an expert on nutrition because everyone's an expert on nutrition. And it's like, this is where I'm like, are, are we losing the ability to even think our own thoughts? Um, and it's not to say that there's not terrible stuff in the world that is like you want to react to. When you see pictures of innocent children, I hope for our listeners, regardless of what color or creed or ethnicity they are, that should break your heart. No doubt about it. But this urge to just go react to everything, I think maybe that's why it's like really crystallizing. Because if you're going to react to something, it's a it's a picture of an innocent child having violence against them. Um, but like it really crystallized for me that like, wow, like the Twitter trending topic is just like, again, like I have this image of like rats at a dopamine lever. And the dopamine lever is like whatever topic's trending that day and everyone just hits that lever. And then they move on to the next thing and they just hit that lever. And I'm painting in broad strokes, but I think thematically, um, this is happening. And at the highest level of our politics, like, what is Donald Trump world freaking class at? Capturing people's attention. The best in the world. No one is better. And he took that to the presidency. You know, I'm, I'm reminded one thing here, Clay, is I'm reminded of, um, you mentioned the, the rats hitting the dopamine, uh, lever. There's the classic study, I think it's called Rat Park, where, they run the same experiment of like trying to get rats to hit the dopamine lever for the field of good drugs or whatever is coming their way. Um, but they found that when they like essentially fancied up the park or the cage and made it like enjoyable and, you know, there was stuff to do and, and it was like a quality cage or place to live. Um, rats don't hit the, hit the lever as much, even if you're trying to get them addicted to whatever drug or substance to get that lever, right? To get that hit of hit of drugs. And and I think that's the other underlying thing that that is part of this is yes, the algorithms, yes, the attention economy, we're incentivizing that. But I also think it's like we live in a time that is like seems chaotic. Lots of people probably feel like they have less control. We have like a or high rate of inequality that is more in your face now in terms of comparison. Um, we have higher levels of kind of like uncertainty and lower lo levels of the things that would like balance those out or uh, dampen down those kind of stress response like belonging, connection, family, friends, in person, doing real things in the real world. We've all kind of thrown that to the side so we don't have that dampening effect. And I think that's a big contributor to that, to this as well, is it's almost like we've got the 
the technology and the social media and the internet and the incentives to kind of go nuts to make it, you know, make your mark, do your attention thing. But we also have these like underlying basic psychological needs from belonging and connection to autonomy to also things like, you know, you want to feel like you're doing something good that is distinguishing and you have a voice or a place in society and in an internet where it's like our comparison has moved from, you know, our neighborhood or our school or a community to every freaking person in the world, it can feel like you're lost. So what do you do? You grab onto that, that attention thing, that thing that might spark some outrage. You grab onto the tribe that promises you to alleviate this, to give you some sense of belonging. And before you know it, we're not thinking for ourselves. And there is actually the last thing I'll say on this is there's good data going back decades on this in the sense that um, I, there was a study, I think it was on the um, abortion and they looked at um, pro-life, pro-choice, but they looked at uh, views on abortion and how they've, how they've changed. And what they found is that like, it wasn't the individual necessarily who was choosing hey, I view this based on my ethics, morals. It was what group do you belong to? The classic example is, I think in the 60s, like the uh, the Southern Baptists, like they weren't for abortion, but they had much more like moderate kind of views. And then in a span of a couple of years, like leadership changed their views. And then everybody in the congregation like shifted their views to the hardcore um, against it or no abortions whatsoever, just based on like, this is where my tribe's going. And I think we discount that environmental, tribal, et cetera, part of the equation as well. Yeah, let me read something real quick from the newsletter before turning it back to Clay. It happens on the right and it happens on the left. Nobody is immune. People are simply looking to find their footing in an uncertain world, to come up with a story that makes sense to them to feel like they are exerting control on something, on anything, amidst the chaos. But it's worth stepping back and asking if spending copious amounts of time on the internet, perhaps especially social media, is working in service of us thinking our own thoughts and wisely responding to challenges, or if it's actually just getting in the way. Are we telling the platform what we think, or is the platform telling us what we think? One thing is for certain, most corners of the internet are telling us how to think, and that is fast, tribally, and in a frenzy which are the perfect conditions for us to lose the ability to think altogether. It's a great quote. Um, yeah, I have a, a, several thoughts on this. The first thing is I feel like we should draw, we should make a distinction between, because I think what you first referred to, Brad, there's two things happening. There's one, which is like people responding, not responding, reacting on social media um, and not having the space between the stimulus and response is just sort of like coming out and saying something very reactionary and inflammatory or provocative. Um, and like, I know we're not absolutists here. We're non dual thinkers, but I almost kind of think like, I'm okay taking a hard stance of being like, people just shouldn't though. Like those conversations just don't need to be happening on Twitter, on Facebook. People just don't need to be reacting to stuff there. I don't think it's very useful. I mean, if you guys think differently, you can tell me, but I sort of like, I understand why we do it because it's like candy to read that and to and to react that way, but I just don't really think it's that constructive. The other thing is what you're talking about with the New York Times, and like I don't think the New York Times' thing was necessarily because they weren't 
it's maybe because they weren't considerate enough about the response, but I don't think it was necessarily a rash reaction. But I do agree with you that it is part of the larger attention economy issue, which is what is like, what is first and quick and um, news breaking can sometimes get in the, like getting that out quickly can get in the way of doing the proper vetting. And that is a little more challenging to me because like I, if it's, I think you can sort of stay off social media and still be an informed citizen, but I don't think you can not be reading the news. And like, I think you have an obligation to be somewhat informed of what's happening locally and globally. And so that's a more sort of thorny topic for me is like, okay, how do we make sure we're still being informed, but we're doing it through avenues that a don't charge us up, like don't get our cortisol going so that we get reactive. And also we make sure is like, proper journalism. Um, so there's that. And then the other thing that made me think of is like, we just have such a, there's such a um, cultural capital placed on certainty, right? Like we, nobody wants to say, I don't know. It's like, it, it, you know, and there, and there's a social cost to this. Like if you're out at dinner, this may not even be on social media or, or reading the news. Like if you're out at dinner people are like, what's your opinion on this? And you're kind of like, I don't know. I haven't really read enough about it. People are like, well, that's boring. <laughs> like, okay. You know, and so we have to have, I think there is like such a, such a price. We prize like having an opinion and act like speaking about it as if it's truth and absolute uncertainty as opposed to being like, I don't know. I, I haven't done the research to have an opinion on that. You know, two, two thoughts on that, Clay. As first is on the I don't know. I think. I think it's because we've got this story in our head, this idea that like, if we say, I don't know, then our kind of status, knowledge, et cetera, is under question. Like we incentivize acting like we know something when we don't, because we think that makes us whatever, knowledgeable, important, et cetera, the authority. And you see this all the time with experts of everything who have an opinion on everything and a strongly held one instead of being like, Hey, I have no idea what that is. So there's like a human nature part of that. And then I think it's, it, it's made even worse because like we're all on a stage. So when it's just me, you and Brad, you know, shooting the shit, you know, at a coffee shop, we probably might say, I don't know. But when it's in front of, you know, thousands mm-hmm. of people, or in other case for people, like millions of people, are they incentivized as, as much to say, I don't know? And I don't know if that's the case. And I think now with everything performative in front of thousands, millions, like that pushes against uh, against that. And I think that's uh, a problem. And the other thing I would say on the social media is I was thinking the other day is, how do you think like social media, twi- like the, the trending stuff, the Twitters, the... TikToks that are relevant, Instagrams, whatever. How do you think that would change if like it was delayed? You know, there was like you hit you hit send your tweet and then it doesn't send for 30 minutes or whatever, and then pops up in 30 minutes and says, Are you sure you still want to send this? Or something like that. Because I think part of the incentives is everything is incentivizing like do now, send more, state your opinion loudly, et cetera. And if you just shift the incentives, maybe we need some sort of regulation in there a little bit to create that little space almost automatically. It, it's not going to solve it, but it like turns that down where sometimes you're like, all right, this has lost the fire. I don't need to send this angry tirade into the world after it's been delayed an hour. 
Ooh, I have so many thoughts. Go ahead, Clay. Were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to say it's it's bad. Uh, yeah, I think it would it would destroy. Like, I don't think the platforms would be the same. But I do think the thing here that's interesting, and I, I want to, sir, I want Brad, you to say what you're going to say. But like, I think the way when you like when you characterize it that way, that you can quickly think like the technology is the problem. But I think we love the like anger and outrage, right? And so it's like. I don't know. Is the it's like the internet's not broken. It's like we're broken, and the internet's just revealing how broken we are. Because I think even though we, amongst us here, and I'm sure tons of people listening, like like the pause and the consideration. We I, I love a good like Twitter thread that's blowing up. Like I can't. It's like it's like watching a car wreck, and it's like ah, ah, like I don't know. It, it's a it's a evolutionary psychology mismatch problem. Yes. Right. It's yes. like, I agree a hundred percent. Like we are driven to the anger, to the outrage for good reason. Because like probably when you were on the Savannah and you saw something really bad happen, like you needed to pay attention to it and like devote all your energy and effort and attention to that thing. We weren't, you know, we weren't built to have that occur 24 yeah. seven in every direction. Dude. You know, so I think like that, right now, right now, the tweet that I cannot stop like paying attention to is the anti-Semitic tweet, even though I'm Jewish, like it should be the most appalling, revolting tweet. But that's the one where I'm like, get caught doom scrolling. Yeah. So this is well, what this brings up the thing. And I think you're right, Clay. But it's like the reason I bring up the tech is it's a heck of a lot easier to regulate and adjust the tech. Yeah. Then to say, hey, people. we've got we've we've all got this problem. Like we all need yeah. to go to like intense therapy to work against this thing and probably still not like solve it. So it's I, never gonna yeah. happen. Yeah. yeah, you need you need the environmental constraint. And the tech the tech promotes it. Not only like the tech's not neutral. So yeah, it's Neil, it. Neil, yeah. Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan, the great media theorists of the, the 20th century, the medium is the message. And if the medium of the internet is fast, instantaneous, and being first wins, then the message is you should be fast, instant, expect things instantly, and be first. Um, so I think like it's it's two things. It is our base instinct, and it's a medium that is not helping us, but actively working against our better angels and promoting our base instinct. And people are making billions of dollars as a result, so it's going to be very hard to shift. Um, some other things that were on my mind, something that I think that got really blown out of proportion is, yeah, if you see someone with a knee on their neck that is screaming for their life and you're silent, like, okay, silence is violence. Yes, I think mm-hmm. you need to speak up. But that has gotten bastardized, where now you need to have a take on everything immediately or else it's violence. And that's just insane. Like, silence is silence. If anything, having a take on everything immediately is is, is kind of violent. Um, the second thought in, in no order is I was just talking to a phenomenal friend of the growth equation and thinker on this topic, Cal Newport, and he's like, we need the PBS NewsHour model back where every night PBS NewsHour comes on and they report the news from the day and they occasionally make mistakes too because a day is not that long to turn something around. I mean, they correct the mistakes the next day. And when we had that model, you could stay really informed 
and really responsive. And that's kind of true of a print newspaper, right? Like something that came mm-hmm. daily. And then on the New York Times thing, I want to acknowledge that reporting from a war zone is really, really, really hard. Knowing who to trust between a widely recognized terrorist organization and the head of a government who is a fairly like authoritarian, dishonest leader himself is also really, really hard. So it's a tough situation. And yet, I do think that it is the same system that says, like, who's going to be first? Who's going to run that headline? Who's going to blow it up on their page? And there is like a thrill to that. And there's an incentive to do it because the New York Times got gazillions of eyeballs that day. So if you, it's, it's, and this is what I was saying when it's not just, we're talking a lot about the media, but it's no different than the VC backed startup models where, like, even if you're not sure if Theranos technology is real, or even if you're not sure if Sam Bankman Fried is full of shit, the cost of not being first is so great that you just go with it. And I think that Sam Bankman Fried, the New York Times running that story errantly, Elizabeth Holmes, and Donald Trump being president, like, they're all symptoms of the same thing, which is capture attention. And if you're not first, you're going to get penalized. And man, that creates a really frenetic, frantic place to live. I mean, Hannah Arendt warned against this for very good reason, as did Victor Frankel and Ray Molo. Rollo May. Rollo May. Rollo May. Ray Molo. <laughs> get, get my man right. No. So I, I think you're right. I think that the issue, though, is like you can't wind back the clock to PBS NewsHour because it would just fail because no one's watching it amidst the chaos. Right. Even if it's the best source, the best accuracy, what they need, it's it's like putting the vegetable down when they've got like, you know, all the good food that we want, all the candy and, you know, high quality or, you know, tasty stuff in front of us when we're starving, we're going to eat the candy. So I, I don't know. That's where I think it's really tricky. It's one of these where it's easy to identify the problem. But then it it almost gets to like, hey, we've got to figure out some sort of like regulation and incentive shift. But the cat is kind of out of the bag, especially since we've kind of gone to, uh, you know, a relatively unregulated Internet. And it's only going to get worse with like AI and all that crazy stuff as well, because now we can create all sorts of chaos. And acknowledging that, like, it's not like we we live in a small bubble of society. Um, we're going to have inputs from bad actors or people who make want to make a lot of money who are outside of even, let's say, the U.S. government regulation on any of this stuff. So it's 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 in point being not to sound hopeless, but it's very tricky. Yeah, I think it feels a little hopeless. Um, to go back to your, to go back to like the silence is violence thing, Brad. I, I, you know, I was talking today for a future episode of the of the podcast actually with Catherine May, who's written uh, many books, including Wintering and um, Enchantment. And I was asking her about sort of her social media use, and she was saying, she's like, I basically don't respond on social media anymore. And the question I've learned to ask myself is like, will my comment add? to the violence in the world. Like, will me getting on here and being angry add to the violence in the world? And you said, you know, like sometimes silence isn't violence. Sometimes having a take is violence. That's basically what she's saying too, is like getting on there, being reactionary, stoking everyone else's reactionary fervor can sort of, 
be can add to the the overall cumulative violence in the world. I think. So one thing I'd add there is it's pretty wild. Brad and I aren't like influencer or anything, but like when you get a big enough following, I'm sure you've had this happen. Like every once in a while, you get these people who are like will reply to you and be like, why haven't you you said anything about this or X, Y, and Z? Because the incentive is so much of like the, the idea is like, oh, we have to speak out about everything and everything perceived quote unquote bad. And if you don't, you're like supporting the other side or whatever it is. And I think as Brad pointed out, and you just did too, I think this is such a dangerous standard to have that no one has has taken the time to to think through and be like hey this is this is really bad yeah i kind of think you it's it's another thing Catherine said was like you know i i only respond in areas where i'm an expert right and it's kind of like if you are some of the platform and you have shown that you have an expertise or you've done the work in this area to have an opinion then it's an area where you should weigh in. But yeah, I completely agree. I don't think everyone should have to have an opinion about everything, but I also agree that the way the attention economy is and the way people are expected to have that sort of opinion does make them come out and have to take a stance or get get accused of being complicit if they don't take a stance. But it is also, um, and, and this is like where I struggle with this, okay? So the issue of war in violent, like actual physical violence. It's just really hard to see young kids succumbing to war and violence, right? So one person could say, well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that like dead kids isn't good. And I get that. That's true. So dead kids isn't good, but how you get to a place where there's war is generally somewhat complex. And then though, I can't help but wonder it still is really attention to coming. I don't point this out to people on the internet because I, I'm trying to follow Catherine May and not really comment. And some people listening to the show might be like, well, F you, Brad. Um, but what I want to say to a lot of these people is like, you're not talking right now about deaths of children in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in the Sudan, in Cambodia. Why? Because it's not trending on the side of Twitter. So do you act like, are you actually here to speak out because it hurts you to see kids suffering or are you here to take part in this trend? And I'm sure it's a little bit of both, but I think it's worth recognizing that the only kids that are suffering that we care about are the kids that are trending on the internet. And that is just an observation. It's not right. It's not wrong. But again, it's like the attention, you could argue it the more generous way is the attention economy is determining what kids get our sympathies based on what is trending on the internet. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. If you take this to the extreme, I mean, the thing that we should all be shouting on the internet is if we care about kids is, I don't know, um, anti-malaria drugs or like something that doesn't get that much or you know, um, water filtration or something like that, that doesn't get a lot of maybe attention that would probably in the grand scheme of things, like save the most lives. To be fair, there is no clean water in Gaza right now. And that's part of just like the atrocity that makes no sense, but yes, point well taken. 
Um, yeah, it's complicated. It's a complicated question. Yeah. And like, I feel like we, you know, the, the other thing to recognize is like, we are also in the attention game, I think in a different way, but like, it's not like we, you know, we want people to listen to the podcast, we want people to read books. And I think, you know, to give us credit, you give you guys, especially a lot of credit. Like, I think the noise you're making is meaningful noise. Um, but I think that's, maybe that's the, I mean, that is the barometer in some ways, but it's like, is this meaningful noise? You so, know, are so, we making noise? That so let's, let's, let's tackle that question. I see Steve wants to say something. So Steve, I'll let you say something before. Um, and then let's shift from like addressing the problem to like what we care about here at the growth equation. What our listeners come to us for is broadly speaking, like performance excellence, like getting the most out of yourself on the things that you care about, being a good community member, finding meaning. So let's shift the conversation to kind of where you were going, maybe Clay, which is like, well, what kind of content should we consume? How should we stay informed? And what can we do as individuals and community members to like just do our small part in reversing this trend? And if that's way too big of a goal, just like protect our own humanity. I mean, that's where I come at this. When I spend too much time on the internet, I am a less human person. I snap on my kids more frequently. I'm less patient with Caitlin. I get disgruntled. I rush. I walk around the neighborhood glued to my phone instead of saying hi to neighbors. Like I am a, I am more like a rat in an experiment than a human. And I want to protect my own humanity because I'm going to die eventually. And I want to live like a human because I'm very fortunate to be a human. You are a human, Brad. Um, but, you know, I was actually just going to say, and I, I'm glad you shifted the conversation, is that just acknowledging that like to do that, to keep in your words, your, your humanity, it takes a lot of effort and work. And the example I was going to give is if you look back over the last month, couple months or years or whatever have you, and you look at the tweets that I've thrown out there that have done the best, got the most likes and retweets and all that, they're generally on some hot button topic Granted, where I have some level of expertise, and the one that comes to mind is like the trans athletes in sport debate tweeted one thing, it's in research, goes freaking nuts, like my most viral tweet ever. If I really wanted to like get the most attention, followers, etc., I would just tweet about that nonstop. And like I could validate it by saying exercise physiologist. This is right up my bread and butter. I know this stuff. Like, I'm an expert. I can contribute. But if I did that, I feel very confident in saying I would lose my sanity. And <laughs> you'd be a miserable person. I'd be a miserable person. And I'd probably like be jaded and to use Brad's words, like lose a little bit of my humanity and empathy and other things like that. So I'd, be, I'd have to call you Vinay Prasad. You, you, he, he followed me after that tweet, right? And I was like, whoa, God. I'm like, oh, man, I'm, you know, I, I've, I'm going in a weird world here. Um, but anyway, so, like, when that happened, I remember talking with Brad. I remember thinking, like, you have to be very deliberate and intentional to step back and not go towards that thing. And I think this is where we're, we, you know, which is a productive conversation is, like, how do you have those safeguards? How do you have those checks? How do you have those things to keep you from losing your mind or like being the rat just pulling the lever? Because like, this is where, this is what all the algorithms are telling me to do. So I might as well do it. So I get the most attention 
that I can get. And it's not even about being right or wrong. Like this is some inside baseball. We'll be quick because a lot of people are like, who are you talking about? But to Vinay's credit, like Vinay's right about a fair amount of stuff. I certainly don't agree with him on everything. But you watch the evolution of that guy is like a deep methods thinker in oncology research to just a Twitter influencer over like four years. And I can't imagine he's as happy and healthy of a person now as he was four years ago. But I'm playing armchair. I don't know the guy. Um, But we talk about Jordan Peterson all the time. Like Jordan Peterson's Jungian psychology was quite good. His book on 12 rules for being an adult, it's basic, simple stuff that makes a lot of sense. He was doing a lot of good. And the internet really, I mean, I can say this, people might disagree. I think like the internet really hurt his brain and his ability to contribute in meaningful ways. But the feedback loop is great. I mean, he crushes it on the internet now, but I wouldn't listen to him on Jungian psychology anymore because I don't think he can think his own thoughts. So what should we do is, 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 is people here. Um, I think a couple of things, right? So at the individual level, Steve and I have written about this long before this topic in this particular framing came into our minds, but just do real stuff in the world. Like, and what we mean by that is go for a run, go gardening, go for a hike, go deadlift, do stuff where you are meeting the physical world on its terms and you have to pay attention to what you're doing and there's no device to distract you. Um, like that to me is the the first and foremost step to thinking your own thoughts and, and like being your own person in the world is just have time where this device, this thought machine is not on your person. I think like that is the bare minimum. And what that time looks like, it can be anything. If you want to meditate, great, but you could do it by going in the grocery store and just not bringing your phone in and just standing in line and having to like have your own thoughts, but have some time and space to have your own thoughts and ideally have decent chunks of time. Like it's not enough to put your phone down for two minutes and think about whatever was just on your phone, like really disconnect from that stuff for a, a, a little period of time. I think that's got to be the bare minimum. You, you know, Brad, I saw a trend on, I, I think it was TikTok or Instagram for Isn't that ironic? young teens and adults <laughs> um, called silent walks, which was essentially just teens and young adults going for walks without their phones. <laughs> so it's a thing, which, you know, it's a little shows where we're at. We're going for a walk without your phone <laughs> is a silent walk, but whatever, man, whatever gets people outside and without their phone is is a good thing to me. I I wholeheartedly agree on that. I think the uh, another big one is actually having people like you guys. Like you've got to have people in your life who you talk to regularly who can like pull you off the ledge, who can like say, "Hey, maybe you're spending too much time on this topic or thinking about this." Who can yeah, I call it the, it, you know, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I call it like the, the neighbor who in the past would like talk the crazy lady down, right? You always had like the crazy lady on the street or neighborhood, but she couldn't go full crazy because like the only people she had to hang out with were her fellow neighbors. So they like kept her in check a little bit. Well, now on the internet, like that crazy lady on the street can go find 
tens of thousands of other crazy ladies who and guys who believe things. So like you've got to have your little community that like keeps you in check and doesn't, you know, pull your mind towards crazy places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also people can hear like I the idea of having your own thoughts and think maybe they need to be in some sort of off the grid cocoon where they don't imbibe anybody else's opinions, but that's actually not really it. It's more just like, you know, read other opinions. Hopefully they're from people who have taken the time to have a considered response, but then spend some time alone with all that to figure out what you actually believe and what you're maybe parroting. I mean, I think about this even outside the context of news, like, I have so few experiences now, and maybe it speaks to like me being more online than I want to be, where I experience a piece of like culture art that hasn't already been digested for me, right? So like I remember recently I saw I listened to um some album, I can't remember what it was, that came out. It like came out on a day that I was driving back from Maine, so I had like a, a four and a half, five hour drive. And I just played the album and I was like, wow, this album was great. And I played it again and I was like, wow, better on a second listen. And then I got home and got on Twitter and I was like, oh, this album's bad. Oh, everyone hates this album. And it was like, I've so, I just so rarely have those experiences these days where I actually experience something firsthand when it's like a big, big thing that hasn't already been sort of chewed up and processed and spit back to me on social media or even not on social media, read in a, you know, in a newspaper or magazine or something like that. You mean go watch a movie before looking at the Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But yes. you no, know, I think that brings up a really interesting and good point is like, so often like we pre-shape our judgments and expectations and don't have experiences that are just like there where we're exploring and figuring out, do we like this? What do we think about this? Like, And I'd almost call it like periods where you're active, like you're actively not just consuming, but participating. And I would frame it as Mm -hmm. this is like reading a book where you're highlighting or taking notes or stopping to think about things is a very different experience to uh, listening to a podcast. And I get it. People are listening to podcasts right now, but like we listen to podcasts, but listening to podcasts is kind of like the the background noise, right? You're listening, you're consuming, you might nod your head, but like that thought is just ephemeral. It's like gone. It doesn't stick with you long enough as, you know, reading a a book where you're taking notes or what have you. And the same could be applied to a podcast, like listening to a podcast intently, watching a movie where you're not also on your phone, right? Where it's like, you're in the movie. This is one of the great things that was about movie theaters. You go to the movie theater, you're just watching the movie. It's a, it's yes, it's kind of passive, but it's an active experience in the sense that you're engaged and like figuring it out instead of mm. Netflix on the background, you know, or ESPN or for older people, Fox news on the background, just as the background noise of your life just passively coming in. I think that's an important distinction. I also think that, you know, some, you know, some people might listen to this and be like, okay, yeah, these, these are great recommendations or maybe not. Maybe they think they're bad recommendations, but they might be thinking, okay, but like if I'm reading about what's happening in the middle East and it's making me angry, like what can I do to, to help, you know? And, uh, I don't, I don't know specifically for the Middle East conflict, and I certainly – this is not at all coming from a place of righteousness because I don't do this enough. But I, 
I think some people probably tweet angrily because it gives them a sense of like they can do something. Like I'm ha- overwhelmed by feeling, and this is a way in which I can make a difference, or I can even just like let some steam off because I this is a hard thing for me to sit with. And I think maybe something that could be done in place of that is like just go volunteer locally, and it may not help the cause that you're reading about that's making you upset but maybe you can do some good and actually like and 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 see that good like having an impact on the world and that might give you a feeling of agency and self-efficacy in the face of something that feels very where you feel very helpless and powerless and again i don't do that enough i need to do that more but that's something i've heard i think a lot i think that's right but i think a lot of people don't do that because it's harder to go volunteer in your community than it is to put up an angry tweet yes yeah. Uh, it takes more yeah. time. It takes more effort. In some communities, there's a lot of bureaucracy that you have to go through before you can find the right volunteer uh, yeah. opportunity. You don't have time. You don't have yeah. time, so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's tricky, but I think that's right. I think, like, go take an action that aligns with your values instead of um, just adding adding noise Um so I want to give uh, Nate, good old Nathaniel, uh, growth equation intern, employee number one, just all around rock star, smartest under 30 person I know. I Like I said, this has been on my mind. So I was talking to Nate about it. He's, he's also a philosopher. So we'll get Nate on the show. We'll balance things out. And Nate is like, yeah, it's just like the Bible. I'm like, what are you talking about? And Nate comes from a family of um, like a pastor and Nate's like, I'm going to get the verse wrong. He's like, Matthew 15, seven. I'm like, Nate, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, so-and-so, I think it was Jesus maybe, I don't know. A biblical figure essentially said, you want to be in the world or you can be in the world, but not of the world. And I think that's what we're getting at with the internet, right? You can be on the internet, but you don't want to be of the internet. And that's really what this is all about. Because I agree. I wrote a book called Master of Change. Like, we're not going back. The internet is here. The internet is how we're putting together this podcast and reaching people. The internet, in many ways, is how we all met each other. Like, it's not all bad. And we are all on the internet. I think what we're talking about is trying not to be of the internet. And I would even expand that. And like, say, you can be in the attention economy, but you don't want to be of the attention economy. And what I mean by that is you want to exert your agency and your will and your humanity on the thing. You don't want the thing to take that away from you. Nate, uh, a mic drop from Nate. Well, I guess it was really Jesus's mic drop if he said it originally. Jesus Nate caught the mic and also dropped it. Nate passed it down to me and I applied it to the internet. Oh, what a place. Isn't that like the most mature way to think about it? Because you said something earlier that I totally agree with, Clay. Like the answer isn't to bury your head in the sand and not to read the newspaper. Um, Like this stuff's here to stay and it's not all bad. Uh, But we just, we don't want it to completely take control and we don't want it to turn us into more reactive people that come to resemble uh, Ananda and Willie, Stephen, my German shepherd, who are very... Like, I mean, I'm, I'm actually scared that more and more people are like heading towards Ananda and Willy land where like eight out of 10 times you meet someone and it's fine. But then 20% of the time you just snap and go nuts. 
I feel like that's my experience more and more with people online. <laughs> you know, it's very true. This is why Willie has a vibration collar to keep him in keep him in check. Maybe that's what people need. All right, I'm going to get canceled now. <laughs> yeah, no vibration collars, Steve. Um, another another thing that's interesting is you were talking about like the crazy person in your neighborhood that like you know used to have like friends to calm them down. I mean, now the crazy person in the neighborhood just finds all the other crazy people and you get QAnon. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. I mean, the, the problem, the, the problem is we have this, like, you could constrain it because your ideas were not validated. Because crazy ideas, like, you bring it up at the neighborhood barbecue and people are like, you, they just walk away or just ignore it because it's like, all right, there's whatever crazy guy or gal, like, spewing something. Let's bring it back to real life and talk about football or, Whatever. Yeah. Um, but there's Steve talking about putting vibration collars on you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Seriously. <laughs> That's it. Although I'll tell you what, you get a bunch of parents around a barbecue and they're going to lean in and be like, really? Where do you have this thing? <laughs> but but I, 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 I think that we can validate anything and the internet proves that. And that's a very dangerous thing because like if your idea gets validated by like one person or 10 or 20 or 100 or 1,000 or whatever, it seems like it, you start to believe crazy stuff. And when we yeah. start to believe crazy stuff, like we get into reactionary fear world, et cetera. So it's all kind of cyclical. So make sure that you spend time in more responsive environments. Um, there are no silver bullet solutions to this. I do think this is a case where just naming the problem in like having an awareness of it really goes a long way. Cause then in your own life, you can start to sense like, Oh, am I becoming more reactive or am I like really struggling to think an interesting or original thought of my own? And then you can ask yourself, well, have I been spending a lot of time like being of the attention economy? And if so, then you just step out. Um, and, and, and I do think like, again, I, I think that naming this and having some language for it can help you, more than you think, given that there aren't any like quick fix, you know, hacks or easy solutions. Uh, yeah, I think being aware of it. And then I think having conversations with people in your community about this, because I just, I don't think it's going to be a top-down thing anytime soon. Uh, it would be great if there were like a regulatory regime, although maybe it wouldn't be great. I don't even know where you'd start to like regulate the attention economy, probably with kids because their brains are like even less fully formed and able to set up constraints. Um, but I think that, you know, the most, the best way to think about it would be, I forgot the name. There's a name for this theory and I, I don't know what it is. Maybe one of you know, but essentially it argues that with most new technologies, there's a period where everything sucks as people like figure out the technology and then it becomes really good. So like when fire first came online, everyone probably just like burned themselves to death by accident and like burned down their huts and whatnot. And then eventually we figured out how to constrain and use fire and fire changed the world. Um, hopefully that's what happens here with some of these new technologies. But in the interim period, which is where we are right now, because the internet is still in its infancy compared to any other new major technology, uh, I think that we have to operate at the individual level because it's the only place that we can. And then, you know, run for school board on attention economics and smartphone hygiene. Uh, if you are politically active at whatever level you are, like make this an issue because in a way it's kind of like, um, 
like lobbying, like it is an issue that underlies all other issues. Like it's very hard for us to be thoughtful as a people, as a society, if all the environments that we inhabit are just promoting and incentivizing reactivity. And to that point, I think like, cause I felt like maybe I was a little absolutist earlier. Like I like thinking of almost in, in terms of like having a, the way you think about food, like having a balanced diet, right? It's not like be off social media entirely, but it's like, have I only been getting my news from Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds this week? Like that would be like maybe eating potato chips all week. Like, is there something else? Is there another way I can nourish myself? Right? Like, is there a deep dive from a reputable news organization that I can read about this? Is there a documentary I can watch? Is there a loved one I know or a friend who has informed opinions about this? I can call. I think that's it. I think that's it. All right. Well, Listeners, we appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. We went a little bit long today. Um, it was helpful for me to unpack some of these thoughts. I hope that it was helpful for all of you. Uh, just a reminder, if you want to support the show, there are three ways to do so right now that mean a lot to us, and hopefully it will be valuable for you. The first is pick up a copy of my latest book, Master of Change. The second, pick up a copy of Steve's latest book, Do Hard Things. And then the third is... Share the show with a friend, with a colleague, with a family member. Uh, as you know, we've got big and exciting things happening with the podcast. Hopefully, you can already tell how much better it is now that Clay is here um, to, to really run point guard. He's a much better point guard than Steve and I. Uh, and we want to take this podcast to the next level. Um, again, we've got all kinds of good stuff and surprises in store as we head into next year. But between now and then, if you're finding it valuable, um, share it with those in your community so that you can engage together and hopefully take some of these concepts and try to practice them together uh, and get off the internet. So we appreciate you uh, much. I shouldn't say get off the internet, be on the internet, but not of the internet. That should be it. The Growth Equation Podcast, on the internet, but not of the internet. Um, T-shirts coming soon. Hashtag right. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> probably sell better that way. All right, y'all. We'll catch you next Wednesday. Until then, later. Later.